In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Hunter Marquardt is our guest today on Money Tales. Hunter has become a master of productive money conversations. To him, it's all about the why, which to Hunter means understanding what's important to people and helping them focus on achieving it. At work, he leads his team in weekly money conversations that range from budgeting to estate planning and ongoing learning. Hey, this is Sandy. Hunter is a top producing mortgage loan advisor and works closely with a dedicated team of professionals who close, on average, 30 loans per month. Hunter considers his emphasis on creating honest and lasting relationships with the realtors he does business with to be an integral aspect to his career success. And over the years, Hunter's definition of success has moved from racking up dollars to having a positive impact on people. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, onto our conversation with Hunter Mark Ward. Hunter Marquard, welcome to Money Tales. Thanks, Cammie. It's a pleasure to be here. We'd like to start our conversations by having our guests tell us a little bit about themselves, briefly giving an overview of your life, and hitting on a couple pivotal moments that really make you who you are today. I live in Northern California, Danville, California. I grew up all over the place. So Born in San Diego, moved to Los Angeles, moved to Laguna Hills, moved to upstate New York, moved to Danville. That was crazy, by the way. My full name is Thomas Hunter, but my parents had me go by Hunter since day one, but moving around and having to tell everybody in the classroom that your name, when the teacher calls out, we have a new student named Thomas, and then you have to tell everyone you actually go by Hunter. It's kind of a cool name now. It was not cool in the 70s and 80s. College, University of Arizona, studied finance. I studied finance because I thought my whole life, I guess, kind of been part to a money conversation with my upbringing. I was supposed to figure out how to make money. And I thought finance was the best way to do that. Came out of college and went around thinking I was going to be an investment banker and went to, I think, five different firms. And the best one was a guy sat me down and he said, Hunter, I want to show you something. And he looks around the office and he goes, you see that, you see that, you see that, you see that. And it was everyone's credentials. He said, that guy went to Harvard. That guy went to Dartmouth. That guy went to Stanford. That gal went to Berkeley and you went to University of Arizona. I'm like, huh, okay. So I'm very proud of my school, but apparently it was not good enough for investment banking. So sold Nextel phones door to door, which honestly was probably the best job ever out of college. I got dumped in the middle of uh, 
an industrial park in Benicia. And I had this crazy boss. I'll just call him Mark. We'll give his last name. <laughs> he would jump on that. I don't know. Do you remember Nextel? I do. The whole thing with Nextel was push to talk, release to listen. And these phones were huge. They were military grade. They were like 1200 bucks a piece. I get out of college degree in finance and my dad takes me to Nordstrom's and he buys me two suits, five shirts and two pair of Allen Edmonds. And I literally get dumped in the middle of this industrial park. And all of a sudden Mark comes out on the radio and he said, he says, Hunter, like, yeah, Mark, he goes, you see those buildings out there? Like, yep. He goes, all right, I want you to get out there. I want you to get out there. I want you to hit them, hit them, hit them, bang, 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 kill that pig. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, no, are you kidding not. me? I swear, I swear this to be true. Kill that pig, kill that pig is what he would say to me. And if you could see Mark, he was in an office building in Oakland in a green suit. He's a little guy with a green suit with big fuzzy hair. And that was my first job out of school. And honestly, it was amazing in the sense of one from a humility standpoint, you know, I mean, I hear I thought I was this big shot although the slight rejection being in these investment banks in San Francisco, but then yeah, going door to door selling Nextel phones out of college as a first job. But that was great. It honestly was great, but four years at Nextel, then I went into software because that was the cool thing to do. That was during the dot-com boom. I literally had, I would say at the age of 29, had a junior midlife crisis driving from Silicon Valley back to my house in the East Bay. And I basically came to the realization, I'm sitting there going, okay, so my ego and so much of this talk, I think is ego related as it relates to money. But I was just sitting there. I said to my wife, Kim, I said, honey, I'm, I'm selling a product I don't understand. I don't know that it solves a problem that anyone knows exists. And I'm selling to people that don't like me. And I'm 29 years old. So this is going to be, aside from being able to tell people at the holiday party that I sell software, this is not going to end well. And within a couple of weeks, I talked to some very close friends in my uh, family. My dad was on the wholesale side of the mortgage business. And I remember having a conversation with my dad just saying, you know, dad, I'm going to die doing this. I hate doing this. What can I do? And he said, well, you can get into doing loans, but I'll be honest with you. Nobody woke up from anything saying, you know, Mike, I'm going to have a career in selling mortgages. And he said, once you get in it, you're in it and it's not easy to get out. So you got to think hard about whether or not you want to kind of pass this, what was supposed to be a cool career in, in software and tech in the Bay Area and take this other route of more of, I'll just call a spade a spade, a much lower barrier to entry. But I made the decision based on just what am I doing here? And so now I'm 47. So that's 18 years later. I'm still in this business and doing well. And I love doing it. You said something that love to pull you back to, which was around your upbringing and how your upbringing was very clear. You needed to go make money. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it was, I need to go make money. My parents are awesome. My parents literally to this day live three miles from me. They are my boy's best friends. I do want to be very, very cognizant in the chance that they hear this, that I love them very much. They're depression babies. They are survivors. My great, great, no, my great grandpa during the 
depression literally owned the city block of Hollywood and Vine and these meat markets and lost everything during the depression, like everything. My mom's dad owned a bar in Santa Maria, California, and they basically lost everything. So net net, my parents were raised with the mindset of you had to save, you had to save, you had to save. And I think my dad also being certainly competitive, but his whole thing was success matters and success was defined as far as he knew it by how much money he made. So I think that's probably, he's very competitive, he's very driven, and his only understanding of success, I would say at the time, was a combination of leadership, position, not ego, but position and financial rewards from that. Me being his son and him being someone that I admired and respected, that was just like any parent and like any child. I think you look at your parents. I always explain my upbringing is my parents got an 80% very right with the love that they gave my sister and I. And I would hope my boys say that I got it 20% wrong too. And that's where they developed into their own people. But there was definitely just a, when you talked about what you were going to do in your life financially, in your career it was more money driven than it was, well, so tell me what you're passionate about. What feels good? What this? It's like, you got to make money first above all else. And then people say, find what you love and the money will follow. This was more of make money and hopefully you love what you do. Hunter, it sounds like you had a lot of lessons from your parents when you were growing up about money. What were the conversations like that you guys were having? I don't know how intentional they were about it. I think my parents would tell you with my sister and I, they were just trying to figure out how to survive. They were figuring out how to survive and they were a team, I don't want to say against the world, but it was my mom and my dad trying to figure out how to create a life that they didn't have growing up. And we were just going through it real time as their kids. I actually talked to them about this stuff a little bit and I'm now at a level also because of the life that they provided me, including financially, where I have a choice to look back and be more reflective of what I want our kids to be and what I think of money and this and that. So they were just getting by and getting through it. So no, I wouldn't say they sat me down intentionally with these lessons around money versus watching them, frugality, taking care of things more. Those are the really strong things that I got from my folks is, when you earn something, you take care of it more, you appreciate it more. I mean, I think we all talk about that from a generation perspective, even with my boys now, it's like the further you get away from having to go through the struggles of earning it where your choice was, my choice is like my ego or whatever, I'm still going to be okay. I have enough, I'm going to be okay. Their choices at the times were, there was no backstop. You earned or you didn't survive or you didn't eat. And it's a very different mindset when you get two or three or four generations away from that. So intentional, no, watching them and learning from it, tons of lessons. Yeah, lots of lessons. It feels intense, but did it feel to you intense or was it just part of normal life? It was normal life. By the way, I probably talk a little intense. So that's, <laughs> I don't mean to. <laughs> I love it. This is honestly like, this isn't an intense thing for me. I just probably talk a little intense. We just laugh about things. You know I mean? Like an example would be my dad and I just, when we lived in Southern California, 
one of the first things they did when they had a little bit of money is they bought a condo in Park City, Utah, and they shared it with another couple. And we would go skiing in Park City, right? Sounds super fancy, blah, blah, blah. So we'd drive out there in my parents' Volkswagen van again. And we'd get there and I'd be in the line. I was a chubby little kid. And I'd say, Dad, can I get a chili dog? And he'd say, damn it, you don't need a chili dog. A hot dog's good enough. You know, it's like it saves a buck fifty. But but like that was just the general mindset or those triangular chocolate bars, the Tiburons or whatever those things are called. And as a kid, you looked at those things like, oh my God, Dad, can I get one of those? And you don't need one of those, you know? So, and it wasn't as much as like watching my weight as much as it was like, Hey man, a chili dog's $5, a hot dog's two fifty. We don't need a $5 chili dog in 1982. So that's the kind of stuff that we laugh about now, but those were the kind of decisions, thought processes that were going through their heads. I'm curious, Hunter, when you have an opportunity to take your kids out, do you find yourself making some of the same decisions that your dad made with you? Or have you gone in a different direction because of your experience as a child and kind of made up for that? I'm the polar opposite. We actually laugh about, I mean, my boys now are 16 and 18 and they're turned out to be really good kids. But between my parents and my wife and I, I think they know that we work really hard for what we have. And at the same time, I, I talk to them like they're adults, probably to a fault but I'll explain literally like they know the chili dog story and I'll tell them I'm trying the opposite, but I expect them to respect the money. So if we're out for some ridiculous steak dinner or something where it's just embarrassing to even talk about the cost of the piece of meat they're eating, but I do go the opposite way, but they also, they're very aware of the money, not the money. They're aware of what it takes to, they're kind of aware. I shouldn't say they're totally aware. They're, we discuss it, I think, as healthily as we can. I do want them to enjoy what we've worked so hard for. And at the same time, I want them to understand that it's not easy. And quite frankly, it's not theirs, right? So they're, they're fortunate to have it, but it's not a guarantee. And it's not like they get to order this when they're out of the house. Hey, Hunter, when you're in college, why are you a finance guy? What's drawing you to a finance degree and then ultimately into investment banking? Honestly, because it was the cool thing to do. You're supposed to study finance as a, I mean, this is embarrassing, but I mean, like, you know, I'm a, sounds sexist, but it's like, I'm my father's son. He's in business. He's in banking. He was at Xerox for 20 years before he got into banking. And that was just the assumption of what I was supposed to do. It wasn't even them telling, well, I guess it, it probably wasn't them telling me, but there was probably a very strong suggestion of maybe you should study finance. That was like the hardest core one. It's, it wasn't marketing. It wasn't anything. It was finance. That's it. There was not some magical answer behind it. Did you like it? No, not particularly. I didn't mind it. I was honestly not a great student. I never got tested for different things. And I think now some of these things that we all have, around ADD and ADHD. I shouldn't say they're a crutch because I think both of my boys have it. And I know that they also have some of the same struggles that I do. But no, I, I didn't enjoy being a student, which is kind of funny now because now I write, I do these other things that I actually really enjoy, but it was not education was something that I know I needed to check the box on, but it was not something that I enjoyed doing. And there really was no component of it that I enjoyed outside of maybe history. I didn't enjoy English. I didn't enjoy math. I didn't enjoy Spanish. 
it was a struggle for me and impacted my confidence to a large degree. So no, I didn't like it. <laughs> so you got through it. But I got through it. That's exactly right. I got through it. And you went to that fateful investment banker interview. What did it feel like to get snubbed like that? It just pissed me off. It was defeating and it was very, this actually, now that we're talking about this and this whole money conversation, it created a serious insecurity for me to be around people that I knew made a lot of money that made a lot of money in the form of which you were supposed to make it, right? Like, so someone that went to Harvard and, and they're investment bankers or they're these high-end attorneys or whatever. Like if I was at a dinner party or something, I would shy away from those people. Like they were intimidating for me to even be around because of their pedigree. Would you say more about that? What do you think it was that was causing you to feel that way? Just that they were better than me. They were in a position that I couldn't be in because of my education and because of how I measured success at the time, which was pedigree. Where did you go to college and what do you do and how much do you make and what is your trajectory? I'm sitting there going, I'm literally driving around Northern California selling phones to plumbers who out of their garage and there's these other people that are in these high rises that are in these strategic meetings and their suits and learning and growing and hanging out in the right circles, all that stuff. And I was just, I was on a very different path. And by the way, in hindsight, I mean like those plumbers and uh, I shouldn't mention names. I mean, they're the best people on the planet. Like I think of like, just some really funny memories of sitting there with these people. I remember doing a, uh, I was in, if you ever, I think it's a Cattleman's or like a Hickory pit or something like on the way to Tahoe, like six o'clock in the morning, this guy at Frank septic service said, Hunter, if you want to talk to our group, you got to be here at six o'clock in the morning. And well, so I get out there and there's these 25 folks in this steakhouse and I'm doing a presentation on my next cell phones. But I mean, in hindsight, they were the kindest people and awesome people. But that's where I had it in my head that these people were just, they were better than me. They were bigger than me. That's it. That's a great message there. What you talked about how, how we measure success at different stages of our lives. It's, it's really, I'm not, that's something we could spend a lot of time in because how do you measure it? And at that point, it sounds like it was dollars and, and a title. But today, and I'm hoping you can put that hindsight lens on again, when you think back to your job at Nextel versus the investment banker, tell us about the hindsight lessons there. If I just think back to those moments in time, I would say selling phones door to door, if you can do that, you can do a lot of things. You can do a lot of things. And depending on how serious you take yourself, I would literally just walk into these doors. The first, you probably don't remember this. There was a band called Chumbawamba and they wrote the song called I Get Knocked Down, but I get, I get knocked down, <laughs> I get up again. So I would sit there in my Chevy Tahoe and I would blast that song and I would jump out of my car after the song was over and I would just start pounding on doors and I would just walk in. I, I'm Hunter. I'm with Nextel. Do you want to buy a phone? You know, these people would look at me like, you're what? You know, it's like this 
bull in a china shop. And I just kept the whole concept for me was it was less about the phones and more about making these people. Could they stomach me coming in the next day? Could they stomach me coming in the next month? Could they, if I could just communicate with these people and hang out with these people at some point, if they were going to buy a phone, because I did believe in what I was, I mean, those Nextel phones were amazing. That Nextel phone helped me buy my house. I mean, I, I was buying the stock talk about the money stuff. It was like, I was buying the stock on the employee purchase plan at eight bucks a share and it went to 150. So, I mean, it was awesome. But I mean, going back to your question, I know I can diverge. It was, if you can do that stuff, ego at the door, you have to be willing to deal with a lot. You know, I mean, I'm sitting there, there are t- you know, I had to be wearing a suit. I'm dealing with oil and gas folks. I'm dealing with concrete contractors. I'm dealing with people People didn't like me when I walked through the door. To have to switch that mindset on people and like just the humanistic aspect of getting to know all these various people and them getting to know me, it was just an amazing, I wouldn't change it for the world. Sounds like that was excellent. Great relationship building. So Hunter, you brought up the ESPP plan. How are you deciding to make those decisions to buy the stock? Yeah, that's the positive side of my dad. Well, there's a lot of positive sides by dad, but I think for a moment in time, I had some credit card debt only because I had just gotten married. And quite frankly, if my dad had found out about it, he would have killed me. But ESPP maxed out day one, 401k maxed out day one, me appreciating compounding day one, compounding, holy cow. It's like, how do you get people to understand compounding before the age of 10? I gave each one of my boys, like I explained to them compounding and like had them pick stocks and this, I mean, like that's a mind boggling thing in and of itself. It's too late when you're 50 or 60. It's just, it's too late. But man, if you get people understand compounded interest early, that's cool. But that's why I was doing it. And what was it feeling like to make money and to be able to save and do all the things that your parents had modeled for you as a young person? Honestly, it wasn't that great. I keep thinking like I'm going to hold on to like, it's cool in the sense things have gone better and better. And now I can do some things that, but it just sits in my account. It certainly allows me to afford a lifestyle that I like and that I enjoy, but I'm not, it's that whole thing with, I know it's such a cliche and, and you probably know it too, but it's like, once you have it, it's not that great. I have fun earning it and I'm competitive And to me, absolutely being in sales, it's a barometer for success. I do loans, I make money. And and the more loans that I do, the more money that I make. And so it's a barometer for success. But as far as actually having it, I remember when I crossed the threshold of having, I'll just say it, having a million dollars, right? And it was like, wow, I thought it was just going to be mind boggling. Like, oh my God, like the stars are going to... And it's like your birthday, right? Someone calls you and says, hey, now that you're 30, how does it feel? Or now that you're 40, how does it feel? It's like, well, it kind of felt like the day before. At this stage for me, there's a level of peace probably of when I get really worked up and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm just making stuff up in my head to worry about. From a monetary standpoint, there's things I don't need to worry about. But yeah, in all honesty, it's it's a cool thing. I mean, I, I like having a nice lifestyle. Don't get me wrong. I love having a nice lifestyle. But that's about the extent of it. The only thing I did is bought a really nice old car and it's now been in the shop for literally 15 months. And I could have bought a really, really, really nice 
new car for the, what I have invested in it. But besides that, like I just, I don't go spend a bunch of stuff on things. Hunter, I love these stories. You're obviously a real connector. You're really a people person. Your job is to talk about money. Are you talking to that next level of what's it for, getting at the values? Are you talking to your clients about that? I am. Depending on the relationship, depending on how my conversations go with these people, right? I mean, you have different clients across the board. Some people are looking for more information. Some people are looking for more advice than others. One of the things I think we talked about last time is I'm a business coach for other lenders around the country. And one of the things that we always measure is we're literally measuring on a monthly basis, like how much you're making, how much you're saving and how much you're giving away. Those are kind of the three tenets of the coaching program. How much do you make? How much do you save? How much do you give away? We are always talking about money and I'm more apt to talk to clients about that, right? Like I talked to, I'll bet you... I don't know what percentage, at least 25 to 30% of my clients have to hear me walk through. If you have a penny and you double it every day for 30 days, what are you left with? It's fun to have that conversation because they're like, the number, of course, I'm sure you know is whatever, $5.2 million. And they're just like, there's no way it's five point. And like, that's what compounding means. That's why we got to save. That's why you got to put money in your 401k. It's why, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about your loan amount as opposed to maxing out the 401k, things like that. So I think we're all doing a great disservice to people by not talking about the importance of money as it relates to doing other things with your life. I don't think money in and of itself is a good thing as far as I don't think someone's more important with more money than someone with less money. But I think what it can do, if you learn earlier about the power of it providing different things for you and for other people, it's kind of a shame not to talk about it to people. I'm always shocked by what people don't understand with it. So Hunter, when you're having all these conversations with people about money, what tips do you have for our listeners in terms of how to have productive money conversations? What works for you? For me, it's always understanding the why. It's understanding what's important to people and it's understanding what's important to people and then how them concentrating on, I think money is looked at as a negative thing to people that don't. It's like the haves and the have nots, right? The people that don't have it think that people that have it are these arrogant jackasses. I guess there's a lot of people out there with a lot of different beliefs and causes and desires to go help other people in the world. And they don't understand that by focusing on the money itself, it allows charity. If you're running a charity, do you want people that are spending the time? You absolutely need people that are spending the time to do the charity work. And quite frankly, that's way more gratifying. It's more fun for me to go do some kind of a outreach than it is to write a check. And at the same time, the check is really what helps grow and support that charity. So really long-winded way of me just saying, understanding why it's something is important to somebody and helping them understand how money can have an impact on them leveraging money to grow their why more. One thing I'm loving is this coaching program where you actually talk about giving, which isn't to me intuitive that a coaching program would talk about giving. Is that 
something you developed or is this part of a program you're involved with? It's just part of the program. It's an insane program. And my friends that I'm around here all think I'm part of a cult. I'm joking when I say that. But I mean, it really, it's this group of exceptional people. We're very into, I mean, last year, 500 people are part of this program and we gave away $19.5 million and we track all of it. Like everything gets tracked, right? So it's just super cool, right? It's just, it's a bunch of really good people that when they came together, they just get better and better. And we talk about what are we supporting and everyone supports different things, right? It's all different groups, people all over the country. But I mean, on a monthly basis, literally on a budget, I mean, there's 500 people. It's kind of a, people think we're nuts listening to this, but there's 500 people that could literally pull up my tax returns and my assets right now if they wanted to, to see them because the whole idea, like I'm a coach for the program and the whole idea is as a coach, you have to lead by example. You have to show by example and by having people see what you have, it's not at all like check me out. It's more of this is why you follow this plan and this is where it could get you as it relates to these areas. And it's very lending specific. It's not like someone would just sign up for the coaching program. But the accountability aspect of it is what makes it the program. I've never seen anything like it. I I used to think giving someone $50 to support them running 26 miles was me doing them a favor. And now, thanks to financial advisors that I work with and stuff, I mean, we've got a charity trust in our name and this and that. I mean, it's just super, so much more fun. And, And, you know, the whole concept of what's interesting now about all of this stuff is like, I'll call it crap. The crap that I used to hear and discount because I wasn't following it, it turns out that it's all right. Meaning like you give, you get, you do. Like all that stuff, absolutely, it comes to fruition. So Hunter, it sounds like this training program that you've been a part of, that you've been leading, has really transformed you. A hundred percent. I think you mentioned like, like what are some pivotal moments? You know, I think of my pivotal moments in my life, I would say my wife and I'm not trying to be romantic, but she's so cool. And I'm so bouncing off the rails and highs and lows. And she's just like this constant, easy stream of, she made a joke a couple of years ago. I met her my first day of college. So she knows me well enough at this point where she shouldn't leave me anytime soon, I would hope. But <laughs> she said to me, because Hunter, I wake up happy and I go to bed happy unless you make me unhappy somewhere in between. And that's like, that's her. and I'm the opposite, right? I'm going peaks and valleys throughout the day. We laugh about it, but that's, that was number one. But number two was deciding to get out of software and get into this business. And number three really is that coaching program that I signed up for 12 years ago. And I am an anti-group. I don't want to mention anyone's names, but some of the people out in this world that are, I always thought of self-help and all this stuff is just a bunch of BS. I don't anymore because I now kind of look at it and say, hey, anybody that wants to better themselves, God bless them. But you get around people that are just doing the right things for people. Some magical stuff can happen. So super important to me. How did you decide to get involved with the program? So 2000, I grew up with a decent work ethic, blah, blah, blah. But like the mortgage meltdown took place, right? Everyone remembers the mortgage meltdown. And I was all of a sudden that I was high refinances. All I did were refinances. And if you think about the mortgage business, you do purchases or you do refinances or you do both. If you're doing refinances, you're as good as an interest rate. So interest rates go up, you're out of business. You do a purchase business, you're, it's a much more sustainable business. I had no purchase business. So all of a sudden I am literally 
going mortgage meltdown, rates up, no loans. I need to make money for my family. At the time, Jack and Thomas were six and four. And I was literally starting to consult with my old CEO in the software days, driving back down to Palo Alto. And literally the second I got in the car, that anxiety that I had before hit me. And a buddy of mine that I worked with kept going up the rankings in our sales driven contest, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, Zach, what are you doing? He's like, well, there's this coaching program called the core. I'm like, oh, whatever. And he said, there's an event in Scottsdale. So why don't you come with me? So I went to it and these things are expensive. Like my coaching students are spending three grand a month to get coached. So it's not cheap. And I went to this deal in Scottsdale and I called my wife and I, I said, Kim, I can't believe I'm going to sign up for this, but I think it's worth trying it for six months. And I did. And that was it. I was in the program for a couple of years and then they asked me to start coaching for them. So I did that. And so that's how it happened. I was literally on my way out of the business and it was like my, it was my last resort before I jumped back into at the age of 29 going back into something that I hate. Well, no, I was 35. I'm sorry at that point. But here I am going back into something that I detested doing for a paycheck. But that's it. That's how I got into it. It saved you. Yeah. All this stuff sounds cooler than actually going through it, by the way. Yeah, always. <laughs> it's the movie version of our lives, yeah, right? The Good music. of looking back over the shoulder. Hey, Hunter, you are a tremendously hardworking guy and from my lens, very successful how do you define success? And along those lines, what's enough? What does that mean to you? It's funny. I'd once someone today asked the same, what's enough? What success is for me, I have consistently changed this. It's an evolution for me. I would say success for me now is to have a massive impact on a few people, that being my team. And having a very positive influence on a lot of people. To me, that is my definition of success right now. It had been in the past X amount of dollars, X amount of loans, all those types of things. But now it's, I'm not trying to make it sound like, I know that probably sounds like altruistic and I don't mean it to sound overly altruistic, but it kind of is. Like I've, I've realized the more you give, the more you get. Pouring into people is selfishly so good for everything around you. I went through this coaching exercise where it was like, the guy that owns a coaching program is just a nut, but one of my dear friends now, but we just talked about like the bullseye, right? Like having a bullseye and like the center, what is the center of your bullseye? What's the second ring? What's the third ring? And what I came up with is I have a personalized bullseye and I have a professional bullseye and the professional bullseye is my team. And if I think about with doing loans, I have this amazing team of nine folks that were on our clients and our volume. And then I've got my business partners, which are financial advisors and realtors. And then I have my end clients. That's what my bullseye looks like at work. And it's like, if you pour into your team, your team pours into the business partners and the business partners are that much more committed to doing business with you it's super fun. Our team, like we love each other. Like, I mean, we put money in their college funds. We set up wills and trusts for them. We have weekly goals that we work on. We read books together, all stuff. Like if you had told me I was going to do this like eight years, like we literally do a book report every 
we're reading a book right now. I probably, I can't, it's unf you yourself. That's the name of the book. And it's a phenomenal book by the way, but just things like that. And we just, I don't know, we just grow together and everyone's just so committed to be a part of the team that it pours out to our clients. And honestly, things just kind of grow. It's almost like we're the team that everyone wants to be a part of. It's super fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. That's great camaraderie and great support. And it sounds like you've kind of gone beyond some of the typical boundaries that people who work together. Yeah. They do all their budgets on a monthly basis. I look at all that stuff that you just think is insane that when you actually do it, you talk about having an uncomfortable conversation. That was me asking my team if they want me to look at their budgets on a monthly basis. <laughs> in a Tell team us more meeting. about that. That sounds actually pretty interesting. What did they say when you put that out there? Some of them said, hell no. Some of them said, I don't think so. And then kind of approached me after a couple said, I'm in. I don't demand it by any stretch, but I mean, the ones that we review, it's all gotten, they have an appreciation and a concentration for it, just like anything else, right? If you're looking at your, if you're looking at your stuff on a monthly basis, you're way more apt to make better decisions, even down to how much we're spending on DoorDash. We were just talking to another guest who was also indicating that as you look at your statements, it tells you what's important to you. If you look at your spending, it helps you make sure it's aligned with your values. And like you said, if you're doing this more frequently, then you can actually make sure it's aligned with your values and just, it's a check. Totally. It's a gut check. Wine and food is clearly important to my values. It's great. Yeah. Hunter, based on your experiences, including this coaching work you've been doing and all the great interactions you have with your team, What's one piece of money advice that you have for our listeners that hasn't come up yet in our conversation? I would say if you're a grandparent, teach your grandkids about compounding interest at the earliest age you can. With Jack and Thomas, I gave them each 3000 bucks at the age of 12 and 10 and told them to pick stocks and that I get to keep the three and they get to keep whatever else else. And then they look at the money and literally now one's got 18 in one account and six. I mean, they're better stock pickers than me by a long shot. So like just helping them understand, helping the, the generation when they don't, the money that you save before the age of 30 is so freaking important <laughs> from a, certainly from a compounding standpoint. I don't know. I just love compounding. Obviously, I know I keep talking about it. It's not too late. I just think people need to, the amount of people that don't have wills and trusts that are set up and what, I just like to think of what the decisions that I'm doing, how does it impact what's like, if you don't have a trust, like going out and getting a will and a trust set up is boring and you're not going to do it. Then when you understand that the people that you're leaving when you're gone and you're putting them in this horrible situation where they have to fight amongst family members and courts and everything else, like it changes your why as to why you would go do that stuff. I guess my advice would be you have to be responsible with it and you have to take it more serious than most people take it. And at the same time, it doesn't define who you are. So I guess that's what my advice would be like, respect it, but it doesn't define who you are. It doesn't define what other people are. And honestly, most of the richest people I know financially are honestly the most miserable. It's actually amazing. That's interesting. And miserable is a strong word. Not a lady like you would think. I also appreciated your, it's not too late. So today is a great day to start. Hunter, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? My next 
money conversation. It will probably be with a client in the next couple of days, just on an initial conversation, but I'll be reviewing budgets with my coaching students on Thursday. And then I don't have another one with my team until the, we review budgets the first week, the first Friday of every following month. So that's what my guess is would be my next money conversation. And so I love that you're having money conversations all the time. That warms our hearts here at Money Tales. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much for this really great and insightful conversation. I appreciate the journey that you've been on. And I love the messages that you have based on your life experience and the conversations you're having. And I'm sure all the people who you're in contact with in terms of clients and your team and the folks that you're coaching are really benefiting from all that you have to offer. They're lucky to have you in their lives. Well, I appreciate you both having me on this. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Hunter. Cammie, tell me, what was your biggest takeaway from this conversation with Hunter Mark Ward? Sandy, we've heard it before, but I don't think we can hear it enough. The power of compounding. Hunter spoke a lot about the power of compounding and how it was proven to him as a young age and how he believes in it so strongly as an adult and what he's done to enjoy the wave that comes from the power of compounding. But I think another key message that he said, because I feel some people can think, oh no, I haven't started, so I can't get the power of compounding because I didn't put money in my 401k when I was in my 20s or whatever the answer might be. But Hunter's big message was, it's never too late to get started. And I think it's really an important message for all of us to hear. Whatever it is, start today. Do one thing. So that was really powerful to me, Sandy. That's a good one. Love compounding. What about you? I really appreciated what Hunter shared about the coaching that he's doing. And I thought it was so cool that he got involved in that coaching program and he became a coach helping other people and how that's really had a big impact on who he is and how he sees the world. And in that part of the conversation, he shared with us that money is a barometer of success, but it doesn't change what Hunter loves most. The focus for him and many of our guests is on values and goals. That's what's important. Money is a tool to get you there. It might be a barometer as well, but the focus should be on values and goals. And once you get that focus, it's much easier to get alignment in your life and to be targeted. And what a great thing for the folks Hunter is coaching to have him as a caring coach by their side to help them stay on task and stay focused on what matters most to them. And he does it in so many facets of his life, whether he's coaching people in the industry or coaching his team. He brings this every day, and I think that's really powerful. And another point he made that reinforces this is to leverage money to grow your why even more. Once again, just a really valuable mindset to have. It supports what we're talking about here on Money Tales, which is use your money to achieve your values and purpose. It's really what it's for. Otherwise, it's just it's just money. Kimmy, these conversations that we have each week with our guests are so powerful. I love hearing about life and money from different people. And there's so many cool overlapping 
commonalities, but also some very different viewpoints and perspectives and experience. And I'm having so much fun with this. And I want to thank Hunter for being our guest and adding to the fun. He had a lot of great insights to share and some really cool things for us and our listeners to think about. So thank you, Hunter. Thanks, Hunter. And thanks for bringing your humility and your stories to this conversation. Listeners, please reach out to us anytime. Tell us how your money tales are going. You can email us at podcasts at Asperient.com. And if you like this episode, please be sure to share it with a friend or two. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.